Spider-Man for the PlayStation 4 launched on September 7th of 2018 to critical acclaim. Many people were incredibly excited for the game, so much so that the game within a month of its release had already skyrocketed to the top of PlayStation 4 total video game sales, capping out at 3.3 million copies sold, making it the seventh best-selling PlayStation 4 game of all time. And once again, let me stress, that's within a month of its release. Needless to say, this game had a lot riding on it. It was developed by Insomniac Games, who haven't done anything since Sunset Overdrive on the Xbox One. And so when we heard that they were developing a Spider-Man game, many people got incredibly excited due to their expertise when it comes to fluid movement. If you didn't play Sunset Overdrive, don't worry, you are not alone. The main thing to remember about Sunset Overdrive, though, is that the game was incredibly fluid and featured a very, very liquid movement system, which made them a prime candidate for development on a Spider-Man game, which needs just that, smooth and fluid movement. Now compounded on top of this is the fact that superhero games are notoriously difficult to produce. In fact, they're often sold off of just their brand and not their qualities as a game. It's actually pretty rare to get a game that's based in a superhero universe that isn't awful. It seems as though every time Marvel or DC launch a new film, there's some video game to accompany it, and they tend to be terrible and quickly buried before being forgotten. Spider-Man is a different story, however. Insomniac was given the rights by Marvel not to pair this game with the movie franchise that they were working on with Sony, but rather to make their own universe that they could play in and have their own rules established within. Now, when I first heard this, I became incredibly excited, primarily because Marvel was allotting Insomniac the freedom and liberties that they would need in order to create their own game and not a game that was following in the shadow of a mediocre film. But I still had a major concern, and that is that superhero games tend to rely heavily on their fan base. If you aren't going to make a good game that stands on its own, it's easy to create a superhero-based game that plays to the fans, and that the fans will still buy, even if the game itself sucks. Now this can be true of many different things, but a perfect example would be, for instance, the LEGO games. If you're a fan of the LEGO games, you're going to be playing the LEGO games, even if they are no different than the one that launched last year. Another example would be Call of Duty. If you're a fan of Call of Duty, you're going to be playing Call of Duty regardless of whether or not it is a good game as an individual piece of content. But I do want to stress this isn't a bad thing inherently. After all, this can lead to quote-unquote playing to your audience, which is a good thing. If you are creating a product that your audience wants, by definition, you're doing a good job. That's the entire point of business. When it becomes bad is when the studio develops a game that they expect to sell just because it shares a name with a blockbuster movie and not because the game would be awesome even if you renamed all of the characters. The other major concern is that development times tend to be pretty compressed when you pair with a major studio like Marvel because they tend to have very clearly defined timetables that they're operating on. And so it was very, very exciting to see that none of these hindrances were going to be impressed upon Insomniac's Spider-Man game. Sony maintained a relatively hands-off approach, which is actually pretty rare for them. They tend to get their grubby mitts on absolutely everything. Uh, Marvel allowed them to create their own Spider-Man universe, which gave them as much freedom as they needed, a huge budget, and enough time to develop the game they wanted. This was the perfect setup for an amazing game. I was ecstatic. And so, my expectations were very, very high, as were everyone else's. And that's the point of this video, is that we're going to go through the gameplay, the narrative, and the impact of both to try to decipher whether or not this game succeeded in what it set out to do. Deliver a thrilling and exciting Spider-Man game and original story that no one had ever seen before. But before we jump into it, I want to let you know that I played this game on a PS4 Pro on the hardest possible difficulty, which is what I suggest that you do as well if you have not played through the game yourself. I played through the game twice, both times on hard, on that PS4 Pro, once by myself where I was just trying to enjoy the game for what it was, and then the second time when I was recording the gameplay, experiencing it, and really trying to be analytical and critical. I should also stress that there will be spoilers pretty much for the entire game throughout this video, so if you have not played the game and want to, you should probably click away. This video will still be here, but if you've either played it or just don't care, I admire you, and let's jump right into it. The Gameplay 
This is where the game's fate rests for many. Mainly, it lies in the swinging mechanics, because this game is being directly compared to Spider-Man 2, which launched back alongside Spider-Man 2 in 2004. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I played the crap out of Spider-Man 2 back when it launched. I was crazy into this game. It was kind of ridiculous. Looking back, the game is remarkably simple. It primarily just consists of you swinging around the city, a basic combat system, and then some light story sprinkled in here and there. Now, one thing I really wanted to avoid in this critique was looking back with rose-tinted glasses, thinking that Spider-Man 2 was better than it was. So before Spider-Man for the PS4 launched, I actually pulled out a PS2 that I had sitting in my closet buried deep in some boxes, and I happened to have my copy of Spider-Man 2. I popped it in and played it for about half an hour until I couldn't stand it anymore. The game has not aged well, and actually is kind of terrible. The main reason that people look back so fondly on it is because of its physics-based swinging system, which at the time especially was very, very impressive and even today feels pretty good, but that was really the only thing it did phenomenally well. The game actually is so light-hearted, it doesn't take itself seriously really at all. In fact, you actually spend a good chunk of the game delivering pizzas throughout Manhattan. It's straight up silly. But more than anything, it's endearing, and for a lot of us, we played it when we were young, and so this game holds a very special place in our hearts. So really, all Spider-Man for the PS4 had to do was to outperform the swinging mechanics that Spider-Man 2 put forward, and then it would be set, as long as it didn't screw up everything else. And so, let's talk a little bit about how the swinging works and feels in Spider-Man 2 versus the new Spider-Man. In Spider-Man 2, it was fairly straightforward. You had effectively one button for swinging, one for jumping, one for dashing, and then you would go through the city repeating these processes with these basic inputs, and in general, it felt pretty good. Spider-Man's webs always attached to buildings or trees. You couldn't stand in an open field and then magically attach to some empty space of air. You had to have some tall structure next to you in order for your swinging to work, which is a very small detail and seems very obvious, but other and future Spider-Man games would not follow this example. And as I said, the swinging system was physics-based, and so you had to actually properly time your jumps and swings in order to build up speed. And if you were really good at the swinging system, you could actually get very, very fast as you swung through the city around buildings and corners. It was pretty cool. But that's about all that it offers in terms of swinging mechanics. Uh, sure, there's a couple things where you can charge jumps and things like that, but for the most part, this is it. There's no uh, wall dashing, there's no uh, advanced systems for swinging over and around objects. It's all in the swinging. For 2004, this was revolutionary, and until Spider-Man for the PS4 came out, this was by far the best Spider-Man swinging system that had ever been created. And thank God, Insomniac killed it when it came to the movement of Spider-Man. They used a similar physics-based system as Spider-Man 2, where you actually have to have objects surrounding you in order for your webs to attach. You have to time your jumps. Gravity does play a role. You can't just magically start moving through the air. There's dashes, there's sprints, there's pulls through the air. There's very, very advanced scripting for going through certain objects like water towers and fire escapes. The level of detail and the complexity of this system is unbelievable. Another major fact is that the system is remarkably responsive. Not once did I feel as though I were playing a video game where I had to press a button, wait for the game to figure out where my web was going to go, and then it goes. Not once did I experience that. Rather, every time I wanted Spider-Man to do something, he did it. It's the opposite of the Assassin's Creed syndrome that so many of those games suffer from, where you're trying to do something and then the character happens to just jump off a cliff, not doing what you wanted them to do. In Spider-Man, man he does exactly what you want to do when he does it and that is remarkably difficult to pull off but insomniac did it another element is just how fast spider-man gets moving through the city if you get good and especially by the end of the game when you have leveled up and your max speed has increased it gets ridiculous, and I didn't realize how slow Spider-Man 2's movement was until I compared the footage side by side, and it mainly has to do with streaming, there's a lot of hardware elements that come into this, but more than anything, it just goes to show how well optimized Insomniac's systems are. The fact that they can account for all of this moving so incredibly quickly and not make you feel as though you're having to wait for the city to come to you 
is absolutely remarkable. And sure, there are some post-processing effects like motion blur and wind and in some cases rain that can help cover up some of the pop-in and loading that's happening in real time. But more often than not, it's not noticeable and you're just in this euphoric state feeling like a superhero as you should when playing a Spider-Man game. Now, as I said, the system is very responsive, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's intuitive or that you'll be able to pick up the controller and be very good at swinging around the city within 10 minutes like you were able to do in Spider-Man 2. Sure, there was some advanced moves that you could figure out in Spider-Man 2, but more often than not, most people were comfortable swinging within a half hour of the game. In Spider-Man for the PS4, it takes a little bit longer. Part of it is that there's constant abilities that you can gain to improve your ways of swinging. In fact, it's not till about halfway to three quarters through the game that you can unlock some of the more advanced moves that really do help when fighting larger swaths of enemies and mixing in your swinging, which we'll talk about in a minute. As with any incredibly complex and sturdy system, there is a foundation that has to be laid, and that foundation takes time to develop. And in this case, the player is going to need an hour or two of getting familiarized with the controls and with the flow in order to get the hang of it. I should also mention that there is something strangely rhythmic about the swinging in both of these games. It's hard to explain until you actually play the game and understand it because it's a feeling, it's something deep deep down in you where it's almost instinctual of the flow of where you're going, when you should shoot the web, when you should release. It's oddly calming and that's why many people can just swing around New York City as Spider-Man for hours at a time collecting backpacks and small collectibles and it doesn't feel repetitive or boring just because it's got that rhythmic flow and it's soothing it's bizarre but it's something if you haven't experienced you absolutely should. Now, Insomniac also wanted to implement the swinging mechanic into the combat, which they do pretty well. In fact, the first real combat exposure you get heavily relies on you swinging around the larger spaces in order to escape gunshots, because at this point in your gameplay, within a half hour of starting, you're not going to be comfortable with dodging and playing the game in a more dangerous or aggressive way. And so clearly they wanted this to be a priority, but it's not used very often, like at all. Now what I mean by this is that Insomniac never really tackles the idea of Spider-Man swinging around being an asset for him fighting other than occasionally throwing it in as a swing kick or using your webs to tie up enemies, that sort of thing. In general, they tend to rely heavily on stealth elements, which is a little strange for a Spider-Man game, but it, it does work. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And then they also just give you larger areas to fight in, which you can certainly swing around in to avoid certain enemies or uh, brutes, but it's never implemented in a very creative way. In fact, there's only three real instances of when I can think the game actually tries to implement the swinging heavily into a combat sequence, and they usually have Electro involved. One would be in the introductory boss fight early in the game against Electro in a larger ballroom where you're swinging around to avoid his blasts of whatever the heck this is. Another would be when you chase Electro through the city and then eventually try to catch him and beat him up because he's a bad person, I guess. You go on and you fight Vulture and Electro at the same time while swinging around a small power plant. This actually works really, really well. I really enjoy this. It's two aerial enemies against a guy that has to swing to stay in the air. It actually works really, really well and they manage to uh, balance this chaos in the system. But it also suffers from a couple other issues, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the third example would be when we chase Electro outside and around the Raft Prison just outside of New York City in the harbor. This is a smaller example because it's more of a chase than it is implementing the swinging into a combat system, but nonetheless, I thought I would count it. Other than these examples, which usually are implemented in very large scripted sequences, your swinging is only useful so far as to quickly dodge and get away from brutes when your health is low. That's really all you're going to be using it for. Later on in the game, there's some enemies that have jetpacks and can fly, but usually you can get to them without needing to actually swing. You just tap triangle, which web zips to an enemy, and then you can continue fighting them in the air. It's not really the same thing. But all of this is to say that the swinging was done very, very well and didn't just meet, but rather exceeded what Spider-Man for the PlayStation 2 and many other consoles was able to accomplish. 
It's much smoother, it's much faster, and much more complex, and actually allows a lot more freedom to the player to zip and swing around wherever they want to go. However, this is not the only element of the game. Combat is crucial. This game implements a free-flow combat system in the same vein as the Batman Arkham games. It's very simple. Basically, at first, you have a single strike button, a dodge slash parry button, and then other mechanics that frame these two. But as its core, it's these two basic mechanics, attack and dodge. As the game progresses, you acquire new suits and abilities, as well as new gadgets that help this system to become more complex as the opponents and enemies that you face become more complex as well. And you know what? While we're here, let's just address the elephant in the room, something everybody's talked about, everybody's referred to, and I don't think I can avoid any further, and that's straight up, this game takes a lot from Rocksteady's Arkham games. It just does. It takes similar combat sequences, it takes gameplay structure, detective sequences, gadgets, I could go on. However, I think that this game does a lot of this better than most of the Arkham games. And yes, the combat is structurally similar, but Spider-Man manages to introduce its own crazy fast pace to the formula and introduces some really cool web-based mechanics of its own. The game certainly takes inspiration, but I don't think it's a raw copy and paste, and even if it were, I don't think it would work well, which is why it's very good that Insomniac took the good parts of the system and then tried to improve on it with their own ideas. Now the combat system itself is very, very fast paced, and especially as the game goes on, it doesn't feel like it's stagnating, but rather feels like you're constantly being pushed to the limits, especially near the end of the game, where they add all different levels. You have enemies below you, at your same level and then above you and you have to manage all of these at the same time and the name of the game with spider-man's combat specifically halfway through the game and on is managing multiple enemies at the same time gauging distance and keeping them spread out this is the same kind of juggling you have to do in other games with free flow combat systems but nonetheless it's still important but the combo counter is something i really do have a problem with in spider-man specifically now something felt off when I started playing Spider-Man, especially fighting larger groups of enemies all at the same time, and I couldn't figure out exactly what it was, but I very quickly realized that it had something to do with the dodging while in combat. Now usually in free flow combat systems you are incentivized to properly time your dodges, and the systems usually do this by punishing you for doing the opposite. But Spider-Man doesn't do this. They reward perfect dodges by slowing down time and allowing you to web an enemy in the face if they happen to shoot at you and you perfectly dodge it. But they don't punish poor dodges. In fact, they don't even take away your combo if you happen to dodge when no one's attacking. And this is how it's normally done, by making the player lose their combo counter if they dodge when no one is attacking or if you wait too long between attacks. Spider-Man, even on the hardest difficulty, doesn't take away your combo count for mistiming a dodge or even just spamming circle to avoid getting hit. It just lets you frantically play, which I'm sure was intentional. It does instill a sense of freedom and also panic, which works nicely in the game's atmosphere, especially later on. But more often than not, I felt like I was getting away with something that I shouldn't be. Rewarding perfect dodges is great, but if you don't punish poor play, it's always going to remain a constant. And I think that there should have been some implementation of losing your combo counter for mistiming dodges or for going too early, too late, for waiting too long between attacks. It just bugs me. I know it's a nitpicky thing, but I'm, I'm nitpicky. Deal with it. The gadgets that the game implements within the combat system are ultimately fun, but they're never used specifically. You can get through most of the game without thinking about hardly any of these. In fact, usually if you just stick with the combat loadout that you have at the start of the game with basic web shooting, swinging around, and then occasionally some stealth takedowns, you will pretty much be set. Part of the reason I tried playing through the game on the hardest possible difficulty was because I was hoping that it would force me to use everything that the game gave me and that I had at my disposal, but really the game doesn't do that. It manages to make do with the bare minimum and you only will use these different abilities, whether it's suit abilities, gadgets, or what have you, 
if you force yourself to, which is unfortunate and something I hope they can fix in the DLC. They attempt to implement some of these things, like with electric webs that you use to shock panels to solve some puzzles, but the game will automatically load this particular type of web up for you, so all you have to do is highlight the right area and then hit R1 to shoot your web at it. You don't actually have to put any effort in at all, and it seems like a half-hearted attempt to implement the gadgets within core gameplay. But like I said, the suits have cool abilities that add to combat that you can unlock and you can actually use one suit's abilities on another suit while wearing it, which is nice because it allows you to have your cake and eat it too. If you like the look of one suit, but you like the effect of another, you can pair those two together quite nicely, which is a good touch and encourages the freedom to play the way that you want to. These abilities range from extending four mechanical arms from the back of your suit to help you in combat while dealing with a ton of enemies, or building up your focus meter quicker so that you can heal, or that you can use special abilities and finishers on certain opponents that are giving you trouble, or even something as simple as making it harder for enemies to detect you while you're trying to stealthily climb your way around. And if you are really struggling in certain sequences, you can use these suit abilities, changing them almost in real time, in order to help you get through certain sequences, which is pretty cool. I wish the game pushed you to do this more often, but nonetheless, it is there if you push yourself to use that. All of these things can be unlocked, and to be honest, the pacing of all of these unlocks is good, and it never actually feels like you're getting a new ability just for this one boss and that's it. It actually feels like a natural progression, and if you are being attentive, you can actually use most of these abilities later on in the game. You just have to remember that you have them and how to use them. And another really cool thing that Spider-Man brings to the table of free flow combat is this balancing of health and focus. Basically, as you fight a bunch of enemies, you will build up a focus meter, and that focus meter can either be used to perform quick finishers on opponents that are giving you trouble or to deal heavy damage to mini bosses or bosses, simplifying the fight, or you can use it to boost your health back up to where you needed it to be. It's this cool risk-reward trade-off where you have to think, can I finish this boss right now by just going at it with the finisher, or do I need to heal up and take it slow? It's actually pretty cool, and in some sequences, it gets crazy complicated trying to figure out when you should do what, especially later on when you can expand it so you have three focus meters that can be filled at the same time, allowing you to stack certain abilities, healings, and then finishers. This is a small system addition and one that I was skeptical of at first, but I actually really, really like it. Not to mention that it also encourages better play, even though it's never clearly communicated. In my testing, it seems as though when you have higher combo counts, you actually will build up your focus meter faster, meaning that the longer you play without getting hit or taking damage, the better you're going to be at building up focus, which in turn will help you heal faster and use abilities to finish off opponents quicker. So it encourages a better play style, even though this isn't ever communicated clearly that higher combo counters will boost your focus. But there's also another gameplay element that we haven't really discussed yet that was a very intentional choice, but that I'm a little torn on, and that's the stealth sequences. The developers over at Insomniac said multiple times that they wanted to make sure that this was unlike any superhero game anybody had played before, and they certainly achieved that for better or worse. When most people think of Spider-Man, they think of swinging through the city, of fighting bad guys and then swinging some more, and maybe occasionally delivering pizzas, but in general they don't think about having to crawl through vents to eavesdrop on enemies. and. So when you do that within the game, it's a little bit jarring and can really slow down everything. Now this is intentional. They try to sprinkle these moments in between heavy and intense fighting sequences to balance the pace out, to let you get your heart rate up and then calm you down and get it back up again. And in general it works. However, there's a few times when the game felt really stilted and like they were trying too hard to focus on the deep, meaningful narrative as opposed to just letting players do what they want to do, which is be Spider-Man. But more than anything, the stealth sequences exist to justify Mary Jane's existence within the gameplay sequences itself. Yes, you do play as Mary Jane for a good chunk of the game, but I am sad to report that almost every time she came on screen and I knew it was going to be a gameplay sequence with her, I got a little disappointed because no matter what you do, Mary Jane is not a superhero, and when you switch to her after playing as Spider-Man, you will inevitably feel constrained, which is done purposely because they want you to sympathize with her for the sake of the narrative, 
but nonetheless in terms of a gameplay which is what we're discussing right now it is a bit of a letdown and it really slows the entire pace to a crawl but don't worry we'll talk a little bit more about whether or not this is a justified choice in a few minutes but let's talk a little bit about what the game sucks at with regards to its gameplay, and that would easily, for me, at the top of the list, be the freaking collectathons and the lack of an endgame. Spider-Man has a very, very interesting main quest line and main story. It even has some interesting side quests if you're willing to explore the map and find the very few of them that there actually are. However, they try to sprinkle in a bunch of different collectathons in order to make you feel as though there's a lot more content in this game than there actually is. And they justify these with small dialogue sequences on recorders that help you justify collecting them because you feel as though you're advancing the story by finding backpacks scattered throughout the city. I, I don't like this. Now, to be honest, I think the reason that they thought they could get away with all of these backpacks and black cat vantage points sprinkled throughout the city was because they thought that people would just enjoy the swinging so much that they would be willing to do it. And from some people I've spoken to who played this game, that's exactly what they did. I have one friend who played through the game 100% of it, and he sat down and did all of the backpacks all at once in one sitting. He stopped playing through the main story and just did the backpacks all in one go. For him, he said it didn't feel like a chore. To me, that sounds like a nightmare. This is my YouTube channel, so I'm going to say it how I like. I think that sounds terrible, and that sucks. He seemed to enjoy it, so I guess side with him, side with me. I don't know. Let me know what you think down below. <laughs> I just realized that rhymed. That was funny. That made me laugh. Haha. <laughs> Another chunk of content that you run around and try to collect are pictures of landmarks. However, there's also secret landmarks sprinkled around the city. Now, I didn't realize this until I just happened to see the Statue of Liberty in the distance, and then I took a picture of it, at which point it popped up saying that secret landmark had been discovered, congratulations, and I realized that there were 50 of these secret photo op locations scattered throughout the city, and there was no way of finding out where these were until you either just stumbled upon them, felt like taking a picture, and then took a picture, at which point it will tell you you unlocked a secret landmark, or you wait till you are over level 50 and you unlock a suit modification that reveals them on your mini-map when you're close. This is what the end game is for Spider-Man on the PS4. It, like, I, I don't think I even have to say anything. And the thing is, they're scattered all over the place, and if you are not familiar with New York City, you'll have no way of knowing which particular landmark or item is of particular note. In the Financial District, there's eight. In Chinatown, there's eight. Greenwich, there's three. Hell's Kitchen, there's three. Midtown, there's four. Upper East Side, there's four. Central Park, there's four. Upper West Side, there's five. And in Harlem, there's 11. How are you supposed to know any of this? Well, that's the point, is that you're not supposed to know it. You're supposed to wait until the end of the game when you reach level 50, you get this ability, and then you swing around the map, and even then, it's only when you are close that they will be revealed to you. I suppose you could get on the forums or on uh, a gameplay or wiki guide and see where each of these are and hunt them down that way, but that does not sound fun to me. That is a Ubisoft collectathon. It's lazy game development and cheap content. I don't care what anyone says, this sucks. There's also a ton of dynamically spawning crimes that you can stop for some quick XP and crafting resources, but after a few hours you will have seen most of them and they'll just keep on coming. Later on in the game they introduce some twists to them, some slightly different variations, but at their core they're all the same, and in certain sequences of the game these will pop up easily once every 15 seconds as you swing throughout the city and if you don't stop them peter will make small remarks about how he needs to do his job and save the city when they're frankly just not interesting after a short while yes you do complete them because they are useful for leveling up and for gaining abilities that you want to help get you through the main story but once again it's just dynamic easy content and this is basically the only content the game will have for you other than the collectathons after the credits roll. Yes, there's some research stations, there's some other smaller things, but in general, it's just running around doing some basic challenges and collectathons. And it's frustrating because for me, my first playthrough lasted about 18 hours while doing what I felt 
like were a lot of side activities on what was the hardest difficulty setting, but evidently that was not the case. And according to howlongtobeat.com, it will only take you 30 hours to 100% everything that Spider-Man on the PS4 has for you. To 100% it, that means doing every single one of those dynamically generated crimes, finding every backpack, completing every research station, the main story, unlocking every suit, every ability, every gadget, everything. Only 30 hours. They managed to make a fun game that implements well into the main story, but they failed to create a game that is intriguing on its own without the narrative to drive it. For some, yes, the swinging is great and all that they'll need. Like I said, I know some people who can just swing around for hours around New York City and they have a great time doing it. But for me, without a narrative to drive it, the swinging's great and... I had a good time, but it just ends up feeling bland and empty once the story that justifies all of that action ends. And lastly, my biggest beef with Spider-Man on the PS4, the freaking boss battles. Some of these are decent, don't get me wrong, and visually interesting certainly, but there are a few of these that commit such egregious gameplay and narrative sins that I can't help but point them out. And they get so bad that at one point, which I'm gonna show you, I actually thought that I had broken the game and that I needed to restart. That's not good when you're playing a final boss battle at the very end of the game and you think that the game is broken because it's so repetitive and boring. Allow me to explain and show you what I mean. For the Vulture and Electro boss fight that we talked about a little bit earlier with regards to implementing swinging mechanics during a fighting sequence, this boss battle is actually fairly decent. You run around and you have to juggle two very difficult opponents at the same time. The difficulty, however, is not really there because Spider-Man will always be given a heads up when the Vulture is coming in for a quick attack allowing you to dodge and then immediately trigger a quick time event, which allows you to quickly deal damage. You do this a few times and then you're done. You occasionally will web down Electro and then you beat him up some more. You do this three or four times and that's it. Most of these boss battles only have one or two phases and those phases consist of repeating the same process three or four times. And that process to begin with is not inherently difficult, even on the hardest settings. But this is one of the better boss battles. Take this boss fight roughly halfway through the game with Mr. Lee as another example that's even more egregious. This is after a big sequence when you're using all sorts of stealth combat and then you fight a bunch of goons, you hop on the subway car as it takes off, you're pumped, you're feeling great, and then this happens. You start fighting him and then he starts using these uh, area of effect attacks, I suppose, on you. One that goes through the middle, one that goes down the sides. And all you have to do is dodge either to the sides or up on top and that's it. You do this a few times and then you get to zip on in, beat him up. He fries himself on the electrical board on the back and you're done. That's it. Now, I suppose you could argue that this was meant to be intentionally anticlimactic because it's setting up the raft sequence and the prison break and all of that, but I don't think that's justification for a crappy boss fight. I think that that's just making an excuse for something that sucks, to be perfectly honest. But easily the most egregious sin and the one that I just cannot forgive because it's the final boss battle is the final one against Doc Ock on the top of a skyscraper, followed by going down the side of the building. This is terrible, just let me show you. So when we're on top of the building, we're swinging around, occasionally webbing him, then we zip back in, we punch him up, and then we continue swinging around as he throws stuff at us. We grab that item, we throw it back at him. This is basically a reworking of the Electro fight that happens really early on in the game when he's doing the same thing. You have to pick up slabs of concrete, throw it at him, that stuns him, you get back in, you beat him up, and then he pushes you back. You just wash your hands, repeat the process. Luckily, this is really visually interesting because it takes place on the top of a skyscraper. However, it doesn't change the fact that you're doing the same thing six or seven times. Apparently, it changes on your difficulty setting. And then after that happens, you go through, this little sequence plays out, and then you get thrown to the side of the building and you continue the fight there. This is the point that I was referring to when I said I thought I had broken the game. 
Basically, you go through this process of dodging and then attacking. You dodge, and then you attack, and then you dodge, and then you attack. And he continues attacking the exact same way. Peter Parker continues dodging in the exact same way. And you do this six, seven, eight, nine times. And then the boss fight ends, a cutscene plays, and that's it. On about the fifth or sixth time, I honestly thought that I was doing something wrong. I thought that I was missing some button prompt or that the game was glitching out. I thought I was doing something wrong because when a main boss, especially the one at the very end of the game, the one you've been waiting to fight since the moment you put the disc into the console, when that guy is just doing the same thing over and over and over again to the point where you feel as though you've broken the game because it's so easy, that's not good. Again, this is like, so obvious a criticism, I feel like I don't even need to explain it. And even if I try to explain it, it it is just so clearly evident. I don't think I have to. This is just unacceptable in my opinion. We'll talk more about the implications of this boss fight near the end of the video when we get into the narrative. But I did want to just point this out because this is what has to be improved if Insomniac does another one of these games. The boss fights are so important in Spider-Man. In fact, that's all you really watch the movies for. You aren't watching the movies to see Spider-Man go up against these uh, low-level thugs. You're watching him to go up against these behemoths. And if they can't do boss fights properly, they have no right to tackle the Spider-Man franchise. Now, there are a few good boss fights. I don't want you to think that there aren't. The ones against Mr. Lee in the dreamlike area are really cool and interesting. They're visually interesting. The gameplay shakes it up a little bit, and they're difficult. I love those. There are a few good apples in this bunch, but it only takes a couple bad eggs to ruin an omelet. And in this case, when the crowning achievement of the game should be the final boss fight, the moment when the player sets down the controller after finishing and says, you know what, that was amazing, that was well worth my time that has to be nailed and they just didn't do it here but with all of that said let's just jump right on into the narrative so i gotta hand it to insomniac i did not expect this to work this well trying to go for a relatable peter parker story first and a spider-man story second was a really interesting choice and i gotta say it works really really well now, Spider-Man is usually all that people care about when it comes to these games. All they want to do is swing around, fight bad guys, and when you tell them that they're going to have to deal with story sections based in Peter Parker's life and not Spider-Man, they tend to get a little standoffish. And I gotta say, I was one of those people. When I heard the game's director say that he wanted to make a Peter Parker story first and a Spider-Man story second while prioritizing both and making sure that they were both grounded in real people, real relationships, and real stories, I was a little scared because when I hear that, it tends to just be, hey, we want to try to be different. We want to reinvent the wheel here. So buckle down. You're going to have to play as Mary Jane. You're going to have to play as Peter Parker, even though you're playing a freaking Spider-Man game. I wasn't crazy enthused about that. However, they managed to balance the pace very, very well. So as you go through the game, it's only after major sequences when Peter is tired and the player is tired that you actually play as Peter Parker. Now, early on in the game, this is less true. They're trying to establish a story, characters, and relationships, so they have to break away from the action occasionally in order to introduce key characters, whether it's interactions with Norman or it's interactions with uh, Dr. Octavius Aunt May, Mary Jane, whoever it may be. Luckily, most of these characters are interesting enough that you don't mind it, but nonetheless, it still does happen, and it is a little jarring to the system when you're forced to stop swinging around the city and do some mini puzzles to balance out an equation for Dr. Octavius. My other main concern was that the game looked very, very happy-go-lucky. There was this bad guy, Mr. Lee, that we had heard a little bit about, or Mr. Negative, but that was pretty much all we knew. We didn't get to know where Peter was working, who he was working with. We didn't get to know much about his relationship with Mary Jane or Aunt May. There really wasn't much we got to know during the advertising push for the game, and I am so glad that that was the case. The reason is because the game gets real dark 
real quick. I absolutely love this, primarily because I wasn't expecting it. In fact, there's one moment when you literally go from a shining day with the bright sun, and then within a matter of 10 minutes, you wake up from the side of a building and you are exhausted and the city has gone to absolute hell. It's a wonderful transition. I absolutely love it. There's also some really intense sequences where there's death involved. There's uh, lots of very, very blunt and real violence that's portrayed. So much so that I think that this game could have actually really benefited from an M rating. And the fact that they had to stick to a T rating is a little unfortunate because I think that these moments could have hit home even harder had they not been constrained in this way. Now, I'm not saying that I want a bunch of booty or I want a bunch of violence or blood or gore in like cutscenes and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if we're going to tackle intense, dark themes, we need to do just that. Tackle the themes, not go up and gently pet them, try to dance around them. You need to go full frontal and just go ham. And that's why games like Detroit Become Human, God of War, and The Last of Us can do so well at telling deep, grounded, gritty stories, specifically because they ground it in reality. They don't shy away from these tough topics, they just go right at it. However, I do understand this is a Spider-Man game and Spider-Man is not necessarily Batman or some of the darker DC Universe characters, so it's not quite the same thing and they potentially wanted to avoid that while still dealing with very, very real events, issues, and dramatic statements. So I don't blame them for this, but nonetheless I think it could have been cool if we had gotten an M version of this game. Another reason this works so well is because the stakes are immediately higher. It's hard to motivate a character properly, especially when that character has superhuman abilities, because inherently they just have trouble relating to other people because they are superhuman. So in order to properly ground and motivate these characters, they really increase the stakes. It's established uh, roughly halfway through to three quarters of the way through the game that Aunt May actually has contracted the virus that Dr. Octavius released in Times Square and that she's very sick and potentially even dying. This motivates Peter's actions to an extreme extent, however, Peter doesn't instantly find out about this. Only the player becomes aware, meaning that the player is almost more motivated to deal with these issues than Peter is, at least if they are really invested in the relationship between them. Same thing with the Mary Jane example. The player gets to see both sides of the story, whereas Peter is caught up just in his world and Mary Jane is caught up in just hers. So we get to see both sides of the story. However, the game isn't interested in you taking sides. The game wants to give you that foundation and then watch as the story plays out. And speaking of high stakes, Norman Osborn, who is framed as the main villain for most of the story alongside Mr. Negative or Mr. Lee, turns out to actually be a sympathetic father character who's trying to do right by his son while living in the shadow of his deceased wife, which I cannot explain how ecstatic I was when I realized they weren't just painting Norman Osborn as the greedy, grungy, evil capitalist, corporatist scumbag. It's a shtick that's gotten so old over the last few years, it's frankly agonizing every time it comes back up. But rather, in this case, they tried to motivate his actions with family, something that's very, very near and dear to him, specifically with regards to Harry. And this is something that all ties together during a post-credit cutscene, this one in particular, which was so awesome, I, I can't even express it. I, I won't play the audio or the full clip here, but if you haven't seen that post-credit cutscene, check it out. It's pretty awesome. Another thing that I didn't expect to happen was Doc Ock being the main villain that motivates everyone against Spider-Man. And the way that they handled this was actually pretty interesting. Now, of course, Insomniac didn't talk about Peter's job pre-launch for this very reason, because he's working for Dr. Octavius, and therefore that would give it away that we're probably going to see Doc Ock. And needless to say, the second that I saw Dr. Octavius appear on screen, I knew that we were going to have to battle him at some point in the game or at the very least they would set it up so he's the main villain during the sequel there's just no other way that it could go and so i was incredibly excited when you first meet dr octavius early on in the game he's super positive he's super go lucky he's very supportive of peter very understanding and incredibly likable like to a ridiculous extent 
He's not just a genius who the world doesn't deserve like he's portrayed in in most of the TV shows that he's been featured in and then also, of course, the movie Spider-Man 2 itself back in 2004, but rather he's portrayed as a broken man who just wants to help change the world, but the world keeps pushing him aside, keeps stepping on him and doesn't really care what he has to offer. But even still, he pushes through and tries to provide what he can. In this way, he's very, very selfless, and it works quite well. However, as you go through the story, you'll find out that Dr. Octavius is suffering from a degenerative neurological disease, which will mean that he will lose the feeling and use of his limbs as he goes through. Basically, think Stephen Hawking. It also is going to be affecting the way that he thinks, the way that his brain operates, and this is what motivates and justifies his extreme paranoia and anger against Peter and the 180 degree shift that he takes as the game progresses. Now, it's one thing for a bad guy to be fully conscientious of what they're doing, to be aware of the evil that they're committing, and to do it knowingly because they're evil bad guys, mwahaha. But in this case, Dr. Octavius isn't actually fully responsible for everything that he's doing. It's a mixture of the uh, technology that he's implemented to try to combat this that exaggerates a lot of the side effects, but it's also an effect of this disease that's slowly eating him from the inside out. And this makes the final scene so much more touching, so much so that I want to play it for you in its entirety right now so that you can look at it with all of this context fresh in your mind. Peter, I saw you as a son. I should have known you'd turn on me, just like all the others. Turn. Turn. I've worshipped you, your mind, your conscience, wanting to help others, the way you never gave up. That's because men like us have a duty, a responsibility, to use our talents in the service of others. Even if they don't appreciate it, we have to do what's best for those beneath us. Whether they understand it or not. No, you're wrong! You are everything I wanted to be! You just threw it away! Yes, of course. You're right, Peter. Oh, I see that now. The neural interface affected my mind. But I can fix it. We can fix it together. If you'll help me. I'll do everything I can. I'll make sure you get the best help. No! If they put me away, they'll take my arms! I'll be trapped in this useless body! Please, Peter. That wasn't me. You said you'd never abandon me. You promised. Remember? And of course, you rest easy, knowing your secret is safe with me. You do what you think is best, Doc. It's all any of us can. Peter? Even when it hurts like hell. Peter, where are you going? Peter? Peter! 
It's incredibly moving. And at this point, I felt so bad for Peter because it's an incredibly difficult decision that has to be made to walk away and to leave this part of him behind because regardless of what he thinks or what he'd like to think, the man that he knew, the Dr. Octavius that he worked with and was a close friend of, is gone. Not to mention that the acting, the voice acting, the animation, everything is done phenomenally well. I have to hand it to all of the animators over at Insomniac. This sequence was absolutely phenomenal. Another element of the stakes being so high is how they resolve these issues because there's no easy way to resolve high stake situations without some people being upset or without some consequence being enacted upon the players within the story. The reason that Hamlet ends the way that Hamlet does is because the stakes are incredibly high. Hamlet has resolved himself to finally dealing with the king, and it has to end in a tragic fashion. Otherwise, it would feel disingenuous. Just imagine how you would feel if everyone got up after they drank the poison and Hamlet takes a poison cut to the side. Everybody just gets up. Oh, I guess the poison wasn't as potent as I thought. Okay, let's all be friends. Let's get along together. It would suck because it would feel as though you had been lied to for the entire story because the stakes were fake. And so when Insomniac came along and introduced this idea of an incredibly potent virus that was going to take over New New York City, and then they actually go so far as to have Dr. Octavius open it in Times Square, infecting people, and then Aunt May gets infected with that virus. I knew that they were either going to nail this or they were going to flop hard on their face because either they were going to make it so Peter can save everybody or that he has to choose between the people and Aunt May. And inevitably, that's what happened. I'll play this sequence here as well, and I just want you to note the incredible animation, first of all, that they're able to employ, and also just how important this moment is. This is them actually saying, yes, the consequences are real, the stakes were real, everything in this world was grounded. The second that Aunt May inhaled that poison toxin, she was destined to die in this way. And Peter choosing not to save her in order to save the rest of New York is a huge moment for him and really allows him to grow as not just a superhero, but as a man himself. You're gonna be okay, ma'am. I've got the cure right here. Take off your mask. I wanna see my nephew. You knew? I've known for a while. I never wanted you to worry. I did. And I am so proud of you. And Ben would be too. All the people you've saved. I don't know what to do. Yes, you do. It's these moments that make superhero characters what they are. It's when they're put between a rock and a hard place, when they're forced to decide between the best of two evils and they have to do what they think is right, even if it's incredibly difficult. These are the moments that make or break a superhero. And they absolutely nailed it. I have to hand it to them. It would have been easy for them to chicken out, to save Aunt May, split the antidote in two, make everybody happy. But they didn't. They doubled down. They made the consequences real. They made the stakes real. And I have to applaud them. Now, this brings us to Mary Jane, which ugh, I've got some feelings about. 
So basically, Peter Parker and Mary Jane have been broken up for several months, and we don't get to find out why they broke up, at least not till later in the game, when she later will explain that it was because he was babysitting her effectively, he didn't trust her, he didn't want her going out by herself, he wanted to protect her any way that he could, and he didn't feel like she could fend for herself. Now, I have to say, this is a great place to start the story. Absolutely. I'm not upset about this in one bit. Starting the story here is different from what we usually see in Spider-Man and superhero stories in general. Normally we get the origin story or we see them already together, happily in love, supporting each other. So putting them in this weird intermediary stage is really fascinating and I think it's just cool. Now, basically, what's going on is that Mary Jane wants to be like Peter Parker's sidekick chick, I suppose. The issue being is that she's not a superhero like her boyfriend or prospective boyfriend or past boyfriend, whatever it may be. She has unrealistic expectations of what they can do together, which is why they're constantly fighting about it. For instance, in this sequence, we're in Grand Central Station and Mary Jane is trying to help Peter take out certain guards and enemies of Mr. Lee's in order to prevent him from getting the distribution device to spread the virus across Manhattan. She goes through and does her typical journalistic, you know, makeup excuses, sneak around routine. But then at the end of this sequence, she gets very upset at Peter for having different understandings and expectations of what partners meant. It's absolutely bizarre. And it's a conversation I know I've had with various girlfriends multiple times. I'll just let this play because it's incredibly relatable. And I thought this was really, really well done. So I'll just let it play. Jane Watson, please leave a detailed message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, hey, it's me. Let me know when you want to talk. Texting isn't talking? No, 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 not that kind of over! No, please say no. Huh. Okay, okay. And not okay. What is there to figure out? Oh, you think? I absolutely sympathize with Peter 100%. Uh, Mary Jane does not seem to be grounded. It seems like she is being highly irrational. She wants Peter to treat her like she's a superhero, even though she is not. At any moment in the previous sequence that you just finished, she could have been shot in the head and that would be it. She would have no recourse, no response. He would have lost the love of his life and that's it, simply because she wanted to play Little Miss Superhero. It's not a matter of man versus woman. It's not a matter of boyfriend versus girlfriend or husband versus wife. It's simply a matter of superhero versus not superhero. I totally relate to what Peter Parker is saying. And I have to imagine that that was wholeheartedly intentional. I don't think we're necessarily supposed to relate to Mary Jane. I think we're supposed to see her as irrational because that's the way that Peter is seeing her in this moment. But what's admirable is that he doesn't demean her for this. He doesn't think less of her for this. He simply thinks that they're on different pages and need to work this out somehow. And I think this is an important point. This relationship between these two probably wouldn't work out in real life, which is why this part of the game has been so polarizing. Most of us expect Peter and MJ to just be happy, to not fight. But if they were real people, this is what it would be like. A crazy, dysfunctional relationship filled with crazy stresses. It's the same reason that celebrities have trouble dating non-celebrities. It's just a totally different world that one party can't relate to. To be completely honest, it's unfair for Peter to expect Mary Jane to just roll over and live with him 
dodging their dinner dates to, to go and fight crime, to take off without any announcement, to go and try to take care of a bank robbery. It's an incredibly stressful life, not just for him, but for her especially. And so it's, of course, unfair for him to expect her to just roll over and go along with it. And so in that sense, I totally understand what Mary Jane is saying. On the other side, from Peter's perspective, it is totally irrational for Mary Jane to expect to be treated the same way that Peter treats and behaves as himself because he is a superhero and she is not. No matter how hard she tries, no matter how good she is as a journalist, no matter how many cool pictures that she takes in old museums of weird masks, she will always be a person and not a superhero. So of course it is reasonable for Peter to ask her to behave in a different way than he does. He's going to be more protective of her. She's going to need more protection. It only makes sense. Point being, these are two very different stances, and of course it would lead to a lot of stresses. And as a result, they probably wouldn't work out. And all of this comes together at the very end of the game when Peter and MJ feel like they've struck a balance that they can work with each other and respect each other's opinions and time realistically and move forward. And they say some stupid crap at the end. This, I, I've got a lot of feelings about this. I'll just let this scene play and then I'll rant about it at the end. So? Hi, Mary Jane Watson, associate editor. Congrats. Thank you. I knew you could do it. <laughs> what about you? Find a job yet? Oh. No, but, uh... I'll be right with you, honey. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I was actually considering maybe a career change. Hmm? Yeah, I think I might want to become a chef. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's... You're a scientist. A good one. Yeah, the last project I worked on, I created a monster octopus that almost destroyed the city, so... Yeah. I mean... You do make a hell of a chicken curry. <laughs> I do. Still working on my dumplings, though. Going camping? Oh, uh, my uh, new place isn't going to be ready for about a week, so I'm going to be crashing with Miles for the next few nights. Oh. You know, you can always stay at my place. Only if you want to. No, I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, yes, I mean... No, no, I don't I not want to, but meaning I, I, I do want to, but only if you do. I never stopped wanting to. Me neither. So basically, MJ just said that she doesn't know why they broke up. It just kind of happened, and... That's that. So the last like six months of their life, which has been incredibly stressful, weirdly awkward and miserable for the both of them was basically just because there wasn't really a reason for it. I get it. It's supposed to be like quirky dialogue like, yeah, no, I love you and I didn't want this to happen. I don't know why we broke up. This is so bad. I miss you. It's supposed to be cute. This is just weird to me and it left me and uh, several of my buddies who were sitting in the room at the same time we finished the game. The credits started rolling and we just looked at each other and were blatantly confused as to what she actually meant. Maybe that's intentional. I think it's stupid. Now, as for a couple narrative issues and things that I just want to point out, uh, these are nitpicky, these are small, and perhaps you have opinions of them, let me know in the comment section down below, but I want to run through them quickly. There's a couple big story plot holes that don't make a lot of sense, like having the raft prison just offshore of Manhattan. It doesn't really make sense. If there's a reason, like in the comics, for that, or if there's some reason I missed as to why they need it there, let me know in the comment section. It just didn't make sense to me and it seems incredibly stupid and weirdly convenient for the bad guys so let me know same thing with the octavius uh not knowing or knowing that peter parker was spider-man it it seems like a small detail but nonetheless it does seem like something that they needed to employ in order to justify most of the actions that peter takes and that octavius takes throughout the rest of the main story leading up into the conclusion 
Overall, I like the story and I think it works very, very well. It's efficient, it's paced well, and it tends to be grounded. The consequences are real. There's a few nitpicky things here and there, but overall, as an attempted story of Peter Parker first and Spider-Man second, it works very, very well. It reminds us of why we love Spider-Man so much, because he is a person just like you and me, who's trying to get through his day-to-day -day life even though it's difficult, and he still manages to try to fight crime and do what's best for the people of New York. It's done very well, and I have to applaud Insomniac for doing this. But one thing I will say is I honestly can't figure out how they're going to add something more interesting or complex to the game beyond basic story expansions in the DLC and potentially in a sequel. Because if and when they come out with a sequel to this game, they'll have to really reinvent the wheel in order to add something unique and different. How are you going to improve the swinging mechanics? How are you going to improve the combat? How are you going to improve all of these different things? More likely than not, they're simply going to have to go bigger, go badder, bigger boss battles that are much, much better, longer story, and double down on the character arcs with really interesting characters, perhaps a transition to Miles as the new Spider-Man. But at the end of the day, there's only so much that Spider-Man can do in a video game. You are limited in the location, being that it basically has to be set in New York. You're limited with the characters and with the mechanics. There's only so much you can put in. And so the fact that they were limited and could only get 30 hours of content out of it is a little disappointing. But nonetheless, I hope that those 30 hours, if you played it, were just as enjoyable as they were for me. The game is good. It doesn't do anything incredibly unique. It doesn't do anything particularly amazing. It doesn't reinvent the wheel. It simply serves as a good superhero game that has a really interesting and engaging story that motivates its characters realistically and keeps you engaged throughout the entire story arc. I'm glad I played the game. It probably isn't a finisher on my game of the year list, but nonetheless, it was a good time and I recommend it if you have not played it. But with all that said, thank you for watching. Honestly and truly, I love you all. If you enjoyed what you saw today, please consider supporting me on Patreon or on the merch store down below, or potentially becoming a sponsor of the channel itself. It really does help me out. I'm a struggling college student, and anything you give, no matter how small, honestly helps make these videos at the end of the day. They take a ton of time to make, a lot of effort, so I appreciate any support that you can give. Thank you for watching. I love you all, and I'll see you in the next video.